Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. My guest this episode is an absolute trailblazer who's changing the way we think about magic and manifestation. Dr. Carolyn Elliott runs a seven-figure online business focused on helping people achieve dramatic positive change in their lives through shadow integration practices and applied occult philosophy. She's also the author of Existential Kink, a handbook of life-altering magic. Today I'll talk with Carolyn about how we can tap into our magic to become the best version of ourselves and how to manifest our deepest desires. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Carolyn, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, thank you, Ariane. Am I pronouncing your beautiful name correctly? Yes, you are. Thank you so much. Actually, one of the first people who get it right. Well, let's jump right into it. So your book, Existential Kink, is absolutely lit and transformative, and it gives books like The Secret and The Law of Attraction really a run for their money. <laughs> Your technique teaches people to love themselves crazily and fully, to become whole, and to manifest, you know, whatever we most deeply desire. And the interesting thing is you're not taking the love and light, stay positive approach, but you're taking us right to the edge of our shame, of our fear, of our darkness, and make us gaze down our abyss. And by the way, it's so much fun. Mm -hmm. So what do you mean exactly with existential kink? Yeah, so existential kink is a life attitude and a practice that um, is all about not just embracing or accepting the difficult patterns in our lives, but actually um, finding a secret spark of previously unconscious pleasure in them. So the analogy, of course, is to bedroom or dungeon kink BDSM. Um, and in BDSM, people make agreements with partners and they have safe words and they have plans for scenes that they want to act out where they go ahead and they experience sensations that probably if those sensations just came up in their daily life, they wouldn't like them so much, like getting hot candle wax dripped on you. But in the context of these um, containers, people allow themselves to really open up and enjoy those intense sensations. So the idea is that we can do a similar thing with the difficult sensations, painful situations in our lives. We can give ourselves a container, a meditative container, where we gently, humorously 
open up to exploring and allowing ourselves to feel pleasure, sometimes even explosive orgasmic pleasure in the very things that our mind ordinarily tells us we hate and we want this to stop and, oh, this is so terrible. Yes. A really well-known quote of yours for people who have been doing your workshops and reading your book is um, having is evidence of wanting and that we always get exactly what we want and that sometimes what we want is really, really, really dark. Now, some people would take great offense at this as in, oh, that's victim blaming or, you know, people who are not acquainted with the concept of samsara. You know, we've all been victims millions of times. We've all been perpetrators millions of times. So how would you explain this to people who would be like, ooh? Yeah, so it is. It's a very sensitive subject. So the first thing that I like to say is, Having as evidence of wanting is primarily an axiom that's meant to be used for our own personal exploration of our patterns in our lives. I'll just say that it can be extended as a deeper general principle if one is feeling really courageous. And yes, the charge of like, oh, that's so victim blaming comes up. And I like to say it's actually far worse than victim blaming, which is that it's no one blaming. The notion is that we're always having experiences, as you said, um, even sometimes very, very dark, painful, wounding, horrendous experiences of violation and all of this deep, deep pain. And those experiences ultimately are giving us, they're meeting a curiosity, they're meeting a fascination, they're meeting something within our souls that was curious when we incarnated. Now, of course, getting into the whole like metaphysical talk about the incarnation of souls that sometimes turns people off immediately. Another more materialist way of explaining it is, uh, you know, this was very familiar to the psychoanalysts, Freud, Lacan, Carl Jung, which is that humans, for some reason, have a way of attaching, unconsciously attaching pleasure to frustration. So Freud wrote about this in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, um, Lacan talked about this as jouissance. Jouissance is this like unbearable pleasure that's so big that we repress it and make it unconscious and it unconsciously gets us to repeat and put ourselves into even very dangerous life-threatening situations because there's some piece of unconscious pleasure there. So it's never the conscious mind that wants bad stuff. I mean, obviously, we all want to be happy and healthy and have our loved ones be happy and healthy. But the unconscious is this vast, deep, primeval unknown, and it wants everything. So another piece here, the reason why it's not victim blaming and it's not shaming is because as far as I can tell from my studies of psychoanalysis and from my studies of hermeticism and all sorts of psychology through the ages, it truly is human nature to find a deep, dark, taboo pleasure in the most terrifying, horrible of things because we are, it just, everybody does it. It's, there's nobody who is exempt from it. Now, of course, there are things that we also create on a collective level. So, you know, terrible things like war, racism, sexism, child abuse. I would say that these are things that go beyond probably the unconscious desires of any one individual. 
and are sort of like these deep things that we're collectively holding and creating as humans. It's sort of like in 12-step programs where they say, you're not to blame for your addiction, you're not to blame for your illness, but you are responsible for healing it because nobody else can do it for you. And, um, you know, I've had some really intense trauma in my life. I was molested as a child. Many, many of the people that I've worked with have had experiences of rape, experiences of abuse. So this is like graduate level. This is like next level work. This is something that I would only suggest to somebody who's been experimenting with existential kink on a more day-to-day level. This is something only to try after years of work with EK and when you have lots of support and therapists and friends to help you because otherwise it is possible to go into shame and blame with it, which is not, not helpful. But it is possible for many people have found that when they let themselves find whatever pleasure or interest or little tiny, tiny spark of fascination or thrill in these very, very dark, painful experiences, that it creates a release And in that release, all of this energy, all of this stuff that was just like bound up in like fearing and avoiding and is set free. And that energy can be used to create, you know, beautiful new things in life. So that's been my personal experience with my trauma and for a lot of other people that I've talked to. But I do always recommend that people start with existential kink for years, just on the day-to-day frustrations. So not the worst thing that ever happened to you, but like, oh boy, my, I can't afford the vacation that I want to take. Well, my, I'm always making less money than I want to. Or, my, geez, my partner is just annoying the heck out of me. All of these sort of like ordinary day-to-day things. Because really, we can also release tremendous amounts of energy and create tremendous changes in our lives just working at that level too. So, so a bit of a loopy explanation there. It's such a, you, you got me with a hard-hitting question first. <laughs> explained it very well. And so I would always recommend to anyone who is curious about your particular technique to actually check out some of your courses or read your book. But for somebody who's listening right now and who wants to have a small taste of what it means to practice existential kink, like you just said, start with something small, not something that's overwhelmingly traumatic in your life. So how would somebody go about that? How do you practice a part of existential kink? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. I will, I'll lay it all out. So the first thing that I would say is even with just small day-to-day frustration kind of things, it is important always to thoroughly grieve something first. So um, I had like 10 years of weekly therapy where I grieved tons of stuff before I ever got into doing existential kink. So I do think that that is super valuable and super important and that grief and pleasure are on a spectrum. This is something that I learned from my wonderful friends, Leslie and Tawny, who run something called the Light Dark Institute, which is all about these live kink experiences. So when we're able to give ourselves permission to feel the fullness of our grief, uh, we get to a certain point where it's like, we're kind of done with feeling it. Like it's moved through, we're sort of bored, just, you know, we don't want to cry about it anymore, but maybe it's still there. So first get to that point where you're done crying about it. You're done 
mourning it, but it's, it, maybe it's still there. For example, for me, my existential kinks journey started with the fact that throughout my adult life, I couldn't seem to earn really more than like $1,500 a month, which was the same as my PhD student stipend, which is not much. And sometimes it was a lot less than that. And I was in line at the food banks and it was sleeping on friends' couches and stuff. And it was a pretty grim, humbling scenario for me. You know, one day I just, I started getting really curious. I was like, I wonder if some part of me really secretly enjoys this, you know, because in grad school, I had read all of the psychoanalysts and I started just really getting curious about it. So what I would recommend to somebody is to first start with that curiosity, like just playfully, gently, when you find yourself in a situation, just be like, you know, is there some secret part of me that finds this really fun? Like, yeah, maybe I'm ashamed of it. Maybe I'm embarrassed by it. But is it also super fun? (laughs) And just start asking yourself that question. And if you ask yourself that question and really notice what arises in you over time, you might notice like, wow, actually, yeah. Like for me, I noticed this is kind of entertaining. I kind of I like the game of scrambling to figure out how I'm going to pay my bills each month, of proving that I deserve to exist in the world by the skin of my teeth. You know, I like how my cheeks flush with embarrassment whenever I'm at a restaurant with friends and the bill comes and I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know how I'm going to pay my share of this. It's entertaining. It's entertaining some part of me. So paying attention to that and finding just rigorous, rigorous self-honesty is what it takes. And it does take some humor. It takes the ability to be, you have to be able to laugh at yourself, which is one reason why I say like, you know, if you're in a deep depression or something, probably existential kink is not the best tool for you. Probably you should do grief and other stuff because you have to have some free floating humorous energy in your body for existential kink to work. And once you, you know, you've gotten to that place of curiosity, you might want to set aside some time where you just, um, you know, I give the full instructions in the book, but it's sort of like, you just really lay down and you say, you feel into this situation that ostensibly you don't like, like maybe my partner is not giving me enough attention. And you just feel like, what sensations does that bring up in my body? And, you know, it might be heat, it might be constriction, it might be heart beating faster or whatever it is. And just notice and, you know, get really curious, like, these situations, I usually, these sensations, I usually experience them as unpleasant, but could I allow myself to just experience maybe a tiny bit of pleasure in them? You know, sort of drawing upon this idea from Milton that the mind is its own place and it can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. Giving that space, and like the psychologist Fritz Perls said, anxiety is just excitement without the breath. And I think another way of saying that is, you know, pain is just pleasure without approval. Um, And famously, I'm really fascinated by it. There's something called the orgasmic birth movement, where there's these women who train themselves. I wasn't able to do it for my birth, although I gave it a shot. So I'm really impressed by the women who get there. They train themselves to experience the very intense sensations of childbirth with such deep surrender that they actually have orgasmic pleasure in childbirth. You know, not to say that that's easy, but it's possible. And if that's possible, it's possible for me also to feel, to let myself feel a little bit of pleasure in like, oh, this anxiety or, oh, I feel so embarrassed or, oh, it's like this heat. You know, I let myself practice in feeling into that. And I say to myself things like, 
I'm allowed to take pleasure in every part of my experience. Some part of me is curious about this. Some part of me is desirous to feel this. And I honor that part of me. I honor every desire inside of me, even if it's a desire to be humiliated or ignored or to be frustrated or not make money, whatever that desire is. And usually for every conscious desire we have, we have an equally strong unconscious desire. So it's sort of like um, it's practicing letting the conscious mind surrender to the unconscious mind. And one metaphor that I kind of like for this is it's kind of like our conscious mind is um, a brave knight setting out on a quest. And the knight has all these ideals and all these goals and everything that he wants to achieve. But really, in order to get the deep blessing and the deep power to fulfill those dreams, the knight needs to humble himself to his lady and just kiss her feet and just be totally surrendered to her and what she's doing and what she wants. And when that happens, true love arises and he gets the power to fulfill his goals too. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like, you know, with having as evidence of wanting, just staying away for the time being from the grand (laughs) metaphysical questions of that. But just on a personal level, for me, what havingness is evidence of wanting, having is evidence of wanting means to me is that whatever is going on in my life, some part of me is absolutely dazzled and delighted with it. And I may think that that part of me is stupid and wrong and evil or whatever. And as long as I think that, I'm probably going to keep perpetuating the same experience because what that experience wants is it wants to be surrendered to. It wants to be fully received. I have to learn how to really, really get in praise of exactly what's happening in my life at this moment. Superhumanize. The concept that you're teaching, I find it not only so utterly fascinating, but also very effective. Certain things that I myself have practiced, you know, giving into them, poof, they disappear. There's room for something else and something your conscious mind might be more aligned with wanting. And what I really find so remarkable about your approach is that it's the complete opposite of the kind of what our culture teaches. I feel we're a very repressed culture. We suppress anything that's dark, negative, and shameful. We suppress symptoms. We are addicted to medications, to alcohol, to to sex, to our self-righteousness, to our anger, and to blaming. And um, I also believe that this way of being has added to our finding ourselves in pretty dark times, collectively dark times right now. So how, as a culture, can we start facing our shadow and taking responsibility? Oh, such a powerful question. Thank you. I love this. One of the reasons why I think people experience such great results in their lives, why I've experienced such great results from practicing existential kink, like I went from being broke in a very short period of time. Now I have a a seven-figure business and everything's lovely. And it was this giant change in my psyche. Um, The reason why I think existential kink works is because it's the, the alchemical marriage 
So if we look at the works of Carl Jung and his interpretations of all of the hermetic and alchemical work in the Western esoteric tradition and also in the Eastern and Indian traditions, uh, we see this theme of the union of the sun and the moon, the masculine and feminine, to produce the philosopher's stone. And what the philosopher's stone is, to my understanding, is it's a crystallization, you know, stone crystallization. It's a crystallization of a reconciliation of the opposites. So pleasure and pain, good and evil, thesis and antithesis, self and other would be some of the four main sets of opposites in the psyche that need to be um, integrated Pleasure and pain being the first one. Pleasure and pain is at the level of sensation, which is associated with, uh, in hermetic magic, is associated with earth, you know, this level of our material incarnation. So working at integrating, reconciling, learning how to experience pain and pleasure and pleasure and pain can do amazing things for what we're able to materialize in this life. And further work with those other sets of opposites, good and evil, thesis and antithesis, self and other, can produce ongoing further alchemical transformation. So it's actually, I've come to what right now may sound like somewhat of an eccentric belief, but my hope is gradually it will sound less and less eccentric to everyone. I used to have so much despair about the condition of the world and the climate and the wars and everything. And I've come to this place where now I just, I have this huge, immense hopefulness that we can really turn this ship around because I do believe that what it fundamentally takes is a certain sort of critical mass that, um, number of people who are willing to do this work of making the unconscious conscious, of reconciling the opposites, of doing this profound integration. I don't think it has to be all 8 billion of us at once. I think it just needs to be a certain amount, just like... Um, you know, with the Renaissance in Europe, it didn't need to be absolutely everyone at the same time who was like, hmm, maybe the separation of church and state might be a good idea to work towards. Or I guess that was more the Enlightenment in Europe. But anyways, what I'm, what I'm saying is, is it always starts with a vanguard of people. Every leap forward in consciousness that we humans make starts with just a few thousand, maybe even sometimes a few hundred people who have a major transformation, they're able to have to do this work. So I believe that um, we can start with that and we can gradually all learn to do it. And that this process, this deep alchemical process that leads us to um, simultaneously have a deep knowledge of our immortal, truly loving nature and be powerful and effective in the world can open up the possibility where we really, really realize, oh, wow, there's actually way better ways to do all of the things that we need to do to supply power to everybody, to feed everybody. We've just been doing it in this kooky, nutty, backwards way because we were so self-hating, because we were so repressed, because we didn't know how to honor the unconscious. So an, a really deep thing to me is that um, in one way, the unconscious is a synonym for the feminine, you know, the great dark, the unknown, the mystery, and something that Western culture uh, for, you know, about the past 3000 years has really been guilty of is not honoring the feminine 
at all, just relentlessly trashing it, being ashamed of it, blaming it for everything. And we do the same to our unconscious. You know, we have this widespread thing in our culture where paying attention to your dreams is stupid. Believing in anything larger than yourself means you're dumb. All of, all of these things, uh, magic is silly. And I believe that as we are coming into more integration, what happens simultaneously with that is a greater honoring of the feminine and all that the feminine includes, which is, you know, our mother earth herself and feminine people and vulnerable children and everything. So it's a bit hard for me to put into words. And I I know I might sound a bit Pollyanna right now, but I really am excited. I can feel the, the little spark of possibility of change. Superhumanize. I think I understand completely what you mean. We're currently living in a way where everybody feels very separated from the universe, like we're just this sack of skin and bones in an alien hostile universe and everything is against us. So we're fighting against the universe. We're trying to subjugate nature. We're trying to, you know, um, conquer space. And we have all these uh, even phallic symbols like the rockets going up into space. And it's a sign of a very unbalanced masculinity. Masculinity per se is something wonderful and positive, Mm -hmm. you know, creating, go-getting, affirmative. However, when it's not in balance with the feminine aspects that I believe we all, man or woman alike, we carry male and female inside of us, there needs to be a balance and we need to reconnect to this feminine. And I love what you're saying about how we can get back into balance, because to put it in blunt terms, it's we need to own our shit. We need to face our darkness instead of repressing it. And um, I'm pretty certain that some people who are dealing with this kind of approach for the first time, they might be worried about, well, how can I embrace my shadow without actually acting out on some of these deep dark, nasty things that I may find in myself? Great question. Yeah. Well, so the thing is, is you're already acting it out (laughs) and you may not even know, be aware of exactly the ways that you are. Because so, for example, before I gave my deep, dark, perverse desire for poverty, lots of orgasmic approval, I was definitely acting it out. I was just creating it constantly further on down the line, I found this, I kept getting into relationships with like really controlling, jealous guys. And of course, my conscious mind was like, oh, this is so awful. I hate being controlled. This is terrible. This is so embarrassing. Why do I always get with these crazy guys? And then I got to the place where I was like, hmm, I wonder if this is kind of like the money thing. I wonder if there's some part of me that's really, really finds pleasure in this. And when I was able to shamelessly embrace that and get off on how much I love being helplessly controlled and jealously. Ah, I woke up the next day and I was like, oh, I have no need for this relationship anymore. And I left. Whereas previously I tried breaking up with a guy, you know, a hundred times and I would always call him the next day and be like, hey, (laughs) you know, And likewise, there's all sorts like with sadistic desires, you know, I, this is something that I'm still working on. Sometimes I notice that I'm late for appointments. You know, I never wake up in the morning and I'm like, oh, I'll be late for this appointment. And then they'll have to feel how much they are at my mercy. And I'll just make them so uncomfortable. You know, I don't like wake up and rub my hands together and do that. 
but there's clearly some part of me that wants to like sadistically assert my importance or something there. And so um, I'm in the process of, you know, working on surrendering and enjoying and celebrating that part of me. And I know that when I'm finally able to do it and when I'm able to gain greater access to that sadism, this is another thing I learned from my brilliant friends, Leslie and Tawny at the Light Dark Institute, is that sadism isn't just um, like sociopathic inflicting of pain. What it is, is it's giving sensation. And, you know, some of the most sadistic people in the world are like comedians, artists, shamans who are putting us through really, really deep sensation that may ultimately be really uplifting and healing, but is can be quite uncomfortable when we're in the middle of it. I know that there's like a new level of artistry and a new level of healing that awaits me when I'm able to consciously wield this desire to inflict discomfort and ego death and all of this stuff that is currently coming out in this messy, sideways, unconscious fashion because I haven't yet given it enough love and approval. To all of those folks, I would say like, yeah, I'm all about everybody being like, super awesome and kind and loving and responsible. And the way to do that (laughs) is to give tons of kind love to these sadomasochistic things so that you can wield them with intelligence instead of just accidentally hurting yourself and others all the time. Mm -hmm. I love the definition that you just brought forth about sadism, giving sensation and sensations and how we deal with them are also so crucial for, you know, who we are, who we can become. You have a uh, term that you use, havingness levels. Mm -hmm. And you're also saying that most of our happiness levels are pretty low. Please explain what you mean by havingness levels and how we can up, up, up them. Yeah, totally. So the idea of a havingness level is pretty closely related to what the psychologist Gay Hendricks talks about as like an upper limit problem, which is that for each one of us, we'll only let ourselves have a certain level of good stuff before we just kind of freak out and we start fights with our friends and partners and we spiral into worry and self-doubt and it seems too good to be true and we can't trust it and it's something must be wrong. And these patterns can be so deep that we might not even realize that that's what's happening. We don't generally people don't walk around thinking like, oh, I have a havingness issue. They usually just think like, oh, I suck and the world sucks. And that's why, you know, things are as they are. But some people have a very large havingness level for money and a very, very tiny little amount of love and community that they'll let themselves have Mm. or vice versa. Or some people have, you know, large havingness levels for everything or tiny ones for everything. It can be all different kinds of configurations. And we sort of just need to, start noticing. So like one way that I notice this is my husband and I, we like challenge ourselves. We really love lavish vacations. And sometimes we'll, we'll set up a nice, wonderful, lavish vacation and we'll get to the place and we'll immediately start having dumb fights about nothing because it's like bigger than our current having this level is. So we have to look at each other and be like, okay, We're not actually mad at each other about anything real. We're just doing this to make ourselves feel bad so that we don't have to enjoy all of this disgusting wonderfulness. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I have, um, there's practices that I do too that are pretty similar to EK. I should probably write another book. Um, But I I do something called havingness practice, which 
um, rather than feeling into the don't like situations in my life, which I do with existential kink, I feel into the situations that I like and I deliberately practice accepting those sensations and allowing them and opening to them. We all have a certain amount of sensation that we're comfortable with and the psyche likes to maintain homeostasis. So whatever that level of sensation is, so let's say, you know, my level of gratitude sensation coming my way is maybe like, um, you know, a few inches big. (laughs) And I can let people say, oh, thank you for those cupcakes you made, or oh, thank you for the lovely event that you threw. That was so nice. And I can fully receive that and I can feel that kind of gratitude and it's awesome. But if somebody comes up to me and is like, you changed my whole life and starts telling me this story and it's incredible and it's like, whoa, that might be beyond the gratitude sensation that I can consciously receive without being just kind of like knocked out by it. Obviously, I want to make the biggest impact on the world that I can and help as many people as I can. So I actually have to deliberately expand my having this level for expressions of gratitude so that I don't start unconsciously shrinking and shutting down and pushing people away, which is what I will do if I don't deliberately expand that. Same thing with money. Like a lot of people, you know, they make pretty much the same amount of money each month and that's happened for a long time and they're good with it. And if they suddenly got a check for a million dollars or whatever, you know, we see this with people who win the lottery, they will very quickly spend it and wind up with the same. So it's like all of these things in life, gratitude, money, love, creativity, inspiration, health, all of the best things in life have lots of sensation and energy with them. We need to practice expanding and receiving that fun, positive energy just as much as we do the, the darker, scarier, taboo stuff. So when I'm, when I'm completely willing to feel um, a large spectrum of things, then it becomes just much easier to navigate life because there's nothing that I have to shrink from. There's nothing that I have to avoid or push unconsciously start fights or whatever. I can just keep moving. Superhumanize. Wayne Dyer said, what you resist persists. So you keep resisting having money. You keep resisting feeling worthy of a wonderful relationship. You just keep manifesting that stuff again and again and again. And then it's again like, whoa, where's me? Poor victim. me!" <laughs> oh, until you hopefully get really bored with it. So you call yourself a witch with a bodhisattva vow, which is a vow taken in Buddhism to attain enlightenment for the benefit of the entire creation, entire humanity. For people who might have a negative connotation to the word witch, how do you explain to them what a witch is? Yeah, so to me, I'm I'm into reclaiming the word witch, and to me, it really means somebody who is willing to make the unconscious conscious, to work with these forces of the unconscious, these dreams, these fears, in order to wield and create change in the world. And I think some of the most amazing witches in the world don't go around calling themselves witches. Like that Oprah, oh boy, what a witch. (laughs) She really wields a lot of power. Something fun that I was thinking about the other day connected to this question is, you know, there's these old medieval engravings that show witches dancing with devils. And that's what witches, um, you know, were rumored to do. 
Um, and that's how they got their power. And that's why they were so bad. And one of the things that I think is so fascinating, you know, earlier you were talking about how we can get very into thinking, oh, the world is against us and everything is terrible. So there is a way in which it totally does feel like the world is against us, life is against us. And we could call that the adversary. Hmm. And that's actually what the word uh, Satan in the Bible means is the adversary. That word is taken from, um, is connected to the term from uh, astrology, planetary magic, Saturn. So Saturn um, is the planet of death, constriction, limitation, fate, karma, hard work, all of these kind of like heavy, dense, hard things that generally humans don't like very much. And what I find so interesting about these medieval engravings of witches dancing with the devil is that to me, this is actually quite similar to existential kink in the sense that existential kink is about dancing with, making love with our fate, our karma, all of these hard boundaries and limitations, these feelings of constriction and bondage, because when we dance with them, when we make love to them, they transform and they, you know, they put their power on our side and we're able to do amazing things. I know that people have a lot of <laughs> associations with whatever demons or Satan, and I'm not talking about the forces of, um, I guess I would say like ignorance and destructiveness. I really am talking about the Saturnian forces of fate and karma and limitation, which is what that notion of the devil grew out of. I also think it's very interesting, the Norse, the ancient Norse had this concept of we all have a fate or a philja, and this fate usually appears to people just a few hours before they die, and it starts leading them into the underworld. And the Norse also had this idea that witches and sorcerers were people who knew how to have a dialogue with their fate before their hour of death. And because they could have this dialogue with their fate, they could influence it and they could change things and they could, you know, let go of limitations that most people had. So I think that existential kink is also very related to that because, well, I mean, there's a whole bunch of interesting magical things I could go into here. But um, one of the things that I've noticed and that some of the people who've been practicing existential kink for a few years have noticed is that not only do more beautiful, positive things start happening in your life as you embrace this integration, but there's also your dreams start to change and you start to encounter very, you know, kind of powerful, angelic, luminous figures in your dreams that I would go so far as to say, like, you know, is your fate. So there's this idea um, in Jungian psychology that anima or animus figures would appear in dreams. And I think that those figures are very similar to this philosophy fate idea. They're these guides who take you deeper and who, you know, teach, show you things about yourself and your life that you, you know, information you can't get anywhere else. And he, Jung interestingly said that, uh, you know, shadow work was the beginning part of integration, but the masterpiece of it was having a relationship with your anima or your animus, this kind of inner guide figure, because they are a representative of like the whole of the unconscious. So not just the dark parts, but the beautiful divine parts that we also have trouble fully owning up to and embodying in our mortal condition. So, you know, the topic, uh, the art of magic has always fascinated me ever since I was a little girl. I had a huge draw to it. 
then most people today, when you talk about magic, they'll immediately conjure images of maybe Harry Potter and wands and flying sparks up. And for me personally, a definition that has helped me very much open up is W.E. Butler's um, that magic is causing changes in consciousness at will. I would like to hear from you your definition of what magic is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love I love that definition. I think that's a beautiful one. Um, the one that I mostly work with is that magic is active participation in synchronicity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like when we when we cast a spell, we're arranging a density of meaning. And that density of meaning then evokes a response from the macrocosm, the larger universe. I like to say the universe can't resist rhyming with itself. (laughs) So if I create a density of meaning that's like all about Aphrodite, Venus, symbols, you know, her flowers, her oils, her metals, her everything, and carry that with me, Jung said that um, synchronicities always happen in the presence of an archetype. So I've invoked her archetype and I'll start experiencing Venusian Aphrodite type synchronicities. So I think that that's a really fantastic, useful place for a lot of people to start and it continues to be useful to me. But then after a while, after a few years of working with that, you start to get really curious. You start to be like, what exactly is this synchronicity thing that's happening? What exactly is the relationship between psyche and matter? And what, and I think that eventually sort of like an understanding of magic that I work with now is connected to what we've just been talking about with existential kink, which is that at its deepest levels, magic is joining with that larger part of yourself, that fate, that agathos daemon, that holy guardian angel. And so you're no longer doing magic so much as you are constantly perpetually becoming magic and the world is becoming more and more magic around you. And one of the reasons why I think that existential kink works in a really deep way is because it's working with the the meaning that we ascribe to ourselves at a deep bodily level. And that's, um, you know, we can say I'm wonderful all day long, and that might not really sink into our bodies. So when we get off on how humiliated and shameful we are, and we give that so much love, we actually sink that meaning of wonder and joy and pleasure into our bodies. And from there, it resonates out and the universe rhymes with it, just like it will rhyme with a talisman or a spell. And then so we start to see synchronicities and events and opportunities in our lives that resonate with that wonderful And I know this is all of what the law of attraction is about. I just feel like most people do a lousy job explaining it. (laughs) But it is the same principle. It's the very same idea that we, when we change the resonance of meaning, we change our experience. Superhumanize. A lot of these um, other teachings, which are beautiful and extremely helpful, we have had great, great teachers in the past, but a lot of them actually lack the addressing of our darkness and the actual embracing of our darkness in order to let go of it and to become whole. I've heard you also talk about C.G. Young and um, the process of individuation. So not only becoming an individual, but becoming whole. And which also, um, of course, throws out the question, if you want to become whole, who are we actually? You know, what is the essence of us? (laughs) That's such a big question. I I love it so much. So for me, um, 
I'm, you know, and studying Jung's mandalas and all kinds of mandalas, I guess what I come into deeper and deeper contact with is the notion that as above, so below, our earthly realm and everything in it reflects the totality of divinity. And that divinity, contrary to, I guess, the usual Judeo-Christian conception, that divinity includes everything that we would call evil as much as it includes everything that we would call good. What that means for me as a microcosm, as a person within this, is that I contain everything that is both good and evil. All the evil in the world, all the goodness in the world, I contain all of it. And that my job as a person is not to be good or righteous or perfect. My job is to live in sort of the the middle of all of this, (laughs) all of these opposites, and to be loving, because that love is the equilibrium. I like to say that, you know, love that's not able to love its opposite, that's not able to love malice or evil, isn't really love, you know, it's just righteousness. Like love can always embrace its opposite. That's like the definition of love. I'm really interested in being as aware as I can of the evil in the world and in myself and seeing the ways in which we don't have to deliberately work to create any extra of it. Certainly there's totally enough of it already there, (laughs) but from what's already there, there is also inevitably fascinating, amazing things that come, one of them being the way in which evil, trauma, pain can disintegrate our ordinary ego. You know, that's like the definition of trauma. It's an experience that's so painful and overwhelming that it's completely disorienting and it completely robs you of being able to have a coherent, ordinary identity. But what it forces you to do is find... in you know, some people don't, aren't able to do this and they sadly, you know, they commit suicide or go into addiction. But the way through is to seek a larger context, a larger identity that's beyond, that cannot be broken, that cannot be shaken. And I really believe that pain and evil do serve an evolutionary purpose in sort of the spiral of existence where they drive us to expand our knowledge of who we are and to expand our ability to love And my analogy for this is the TV show Westworld, where there's all this trauma that happens to the android heroines until they wake up and they realize that they're the intelligence that powers the whole show of this little amusement park that they seem to be trapped in. I think that we're all very, very much like that, and we can let our painful experiences shake us into a a larger, more powerful identity. So, Carolyn, I usually ask um, all of the guests that I have the pleasure of talking with, what is the practice that most profoundly affected their life in a positive way? I think in your case, the question is already answered. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for sharing with us um, your insights about that and how to get started on that. And people who want to delve deeper, I highly, highly, highly recommend your book, Existential Kink. It's also a really fun and electric read and people who want to connect with you who want to learn more about you where can they find you yes so um they can join the email list through the forms on my website uh you can also find me on instagram i'm at carolyn elliott two l's and two t's underscore 
Um, I do recommend signing up for my, my email list. I send out cool things via emails, and that's also where the announcements about my programs come out. The main program that I'm doing right now is called Wealth, which is um, an alchemical community where leaders come into their full power, and we have ooh, so many things going on in wealth, deep instruction in the hermetic arts, deep instruction in business and writing, and we have these amazing social events that I think are such great antidotes to the isolation of these pandemic times. Uh, And people learn how to vastly expand their income and enjoy their relationships and be more of who they fully are. Wonderful. Carolyn, thank you. Thank you for this enlightening and magical talk. And thank you for being one of these rare and amazing people, as Alan Watts would say, who are effing the ineffable. I hope to see you again very soon. Be well, and thank you again. Oh, thank you. Such a joy, Ariani. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.